Happy New Year again. I haven't uh, been back since uh, Christmas Eve. I took some time off, and that was wonderful. So thank you for that. And but I wanted to say thank you. There was over a thousand people came to gather at our Christmas Eve services, and it took a lot of people. Actually, the whole season of Advent, extra events and ways of welcoming our community uh, into this building and, and other activities. It took a lot of people to pull that off, and many volunteers. People helped out in so many ways. I'm so grateful to this church for being a welcoming church, an open church. And so it is, I just want to say thank you. Uh, so, but here we are, we're, we're back a new year and it's a great time for us to think about our lives, to set our priorities for the new year, think about our goals. We ask questions like, what are my goals? What am I going to focus on this year? And as people of faith, we of course seek God's wisdom to answer those questions and to set those priorities. And, and if uh, you've been around any significant time, you've heard me talk about the 10 and the 110, which the math goes like this. This is 168 hours in every week. Of those 168 hours, you might sleep 48 of those. That leaves you with 120 hours that you are awake every week. And of those 120, uh, at most, you might spend 10 hours doing church stuff, you know, Coming to church on Sunday, uh, going to your small group, serving with the ministry of the church, you added up maybe uh, 10 hours. So there's the 10 that leaves 110 hours where you're not here at the church or serving in church ministries, and that's all the rest of your waking hours. We want to use the 10 hours that were gathered to inform the 110 hours that were out there. Now, for many of us in this room, of that 110 hours, many of you spend half or more of that at work, maybe 40 to 60 hours or more for some of you at work. I tell you this morning that work matters to God. Uh, and we, because work matters to God, we want to understand it rightly with his perspective. We want to have a God-centered view of our work. Now, before some of you tune me out by saying, well, I'm retired, I don't work, or I don't have a normal job, I would say to you that this message is for all of us because whatever you put your hand to on any given day to do is your work. And maybe you have a normal nine to five kind of a job. Perhaps uh, you, uh, maybe you're caring for a household and that is your work. Uh, maybe one person told me recently, said, you know, my job, at least a part-time job, is to coordinate all my medical appointments and get to them on time and and get the things i need and it was that was that is work that it, even just the toil of making meals and uh in living this is this can be considered work so i want to what does the bible say about work well right from the very beginning the very first verse of the bible describes god as a worker in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth god is portraying himself as a worker, as a creator. And he rests, he creates, and he rests from his work. And so God, God makes things. Then when God makes people, Genesis chapter 2, 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So in the garden, in paradise, there was work to do. This is not a result of sin. Work is not some kind of curse. Work is, work is good. Work isn't bad. Uh, so the ideal world, it, it's not like, oh, in an ideal world, I wouldn't have to work. Well, because in an ideal world, there was work. 
So you can let that notion go. Uh, but the reality is that we live in a broken world, a fallen world, where there is sin, and sin frustrates our work. Genesis chapter 3, God says to Adam, he says, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. That's the world we live in, where work is a good thing that God does and that God has us to do, but it's also a frustrating thing and there is toil, there is a badness of work. And if we get it wrong, if we have the wrong perspective of work, we can end up like Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, who says here in this first verse, I hated life because of the work, because of the toil. If we get it wrong, our, you just hate your work and hate your life. And so we want to get this right. So uh, to set the stage for us, I want to invite up my friend Eric Brady, who's going to share a word of testimony with us. Good morning, everybody. Um, not sure how much of my story uh, many of you know. I, I know a lot of people in the church, but uh, I was born in Haiti, Port-au-Prince. And my family immigrated to the U.S. and I settled in Chicago. Many of you sports fans know that, know that part of it. Um, uh, from the age of five, I grew up in Chicago, um, listening to my father, an atheist, preaching hard work. I can remember the way he ended every scolding speech. You have to be the best among the best, he would say in his heavy Haitian accent. In his household, education was valued above all else. He knew the Chicago public schools were a ticket to remaining in the poverty and crime of the inner city. Our parents worked very hard hours to provide us a Catholic school education from kindergarten through 12th grade. They expected nothing more, nothing less um, than A's for their investment and B's just simply weren't good enough. Along with hard work, good works were just as important in forming my character growing up. From the time we immigrated to America, my grandmother, God rest her soul, lived in the house with us. She was a devout Catholic and was always reading the Bible. Her love of Christ was something I admired and wanted for myself growing up. My mother and grandmother involved us in the church community where we attended school. They preached virtue and hard work and good works. I grew up the dutiful Catholic. I read my Bible, kept the Ten Commandments. I was always sure to do as many good works as possible and I never missed a Sunday service. I wanted to make sure I earned my way to heaven. The strict, strict upbringing and the message of hard work led to success in school with straight A's, valedictorian of my high school, and acceptance to Harvard University. Uh, I remember the day I got off at the train at Harvard Square in 1983, 40 cents to my name, but I felt that I had arrived. I picked up a work-study job, cleaning dorms, and really, really worked hard on my studies. I stopped attending church altogether. I felt that I didn't need it. I applied my father's axiom of hard work throughout my college years. Um, and in 1987, I graduated and started building my career in financial services. Eventually, I started an IT services company that I continue to run today. 
As I built my company in the 90s, I battled with anxiety and stress. I wasn't feeling fulfillment from my business successes. Even though I stopped attending church, I still felt I was a good Catholic boy. My only vice was hard work. In 1999, I met my wife, Georgiana. She was always reading her Bible and regularly attended her non-denominational Christian church. Seeing her read the Bible reminded me of my grandmother growing up. And in 2002, we were married and we started attending the Lutheran church. I began reading about Martin Luther and Reformed theology, and this is where I discovered grace. I learned that Jesus' death on the cross was my salvation. I was able to let go of my Catholic guilt, the guilt and anxiety of not measuring up to God's standard. I no longer believed that good works were my salvation. Grace had taken the pressure and guilt off of me. And I really started, for the first time, I started feeling fulfillment in my hard work, so I just worked harder. Right before Labor Day in 2006, uh, CBS News called to interview me for a piece called Workaholics in America. I have no clue how they got my name to this day, but I'll show you that clip. Labor Day has often been a day of relaxation, but more and more Americans are choosing to work instead. Bianca Solizano reports. This is how millions of Americans are savoring the last sweet drops of summer. I need you to confirm that with him. But Eric Brady is craving something else. I'm an unabashed workaholic. That's the problem. A workaholic who runs a Boston-based computer consulting company. His office is just 20 feet from his home, so he works from 6 a.m. to midnight. My last vacation was my honeymoon in 2002. I took a week off. And unfortunately, one of those days actually worked. And she's still married to you? Oh, she's still married to me. She's wonderful. <laughs> Thanks, man. Brady may seem like an extreme case, but he's not alone. A recent poll finds 40% of American workers didn't take time off this summer. That's the highest percentage in nearly 30 years. I think it's because of the American dream. I mean, one of the things that really distinguishes us from Europe, for example, is the fact that, you know, Americans have been brought up on strong work ethic. On average, Americans are taking 10 days off a year, but the Italians take a month off. The French, 25 days. Even the Japanese find more time to relax than we do. It's gotten so bad that some companies like accounting giant PricewaterhouseCoopers are forcing their employees to schedule vacation. If not, Human Resources sends them an email telling them to just get out there and relax. But for workaholics like Brady, that's a recipe for a nightmare. A nice warm beach, hiking in the mountains. Does it appeal to you at all? The thoughts appeal to me, you know, but if I could do it for a couple hours, three hours, and then come back to that nice warm beach and get back to my life, I think I could have both. Eric Brady. Finish this phrase for me. All work and no play makes makes Jack a successful boy. <laughs> How much you want to bet Jack didn't take vacation either? Bianca Soldrazano, CBS News, New York. Coming up later on so the early show. Before I continue, I want to apologize to my son Malachi. <laughs> I get him started early. Um, and thank you for my wife for indulging with me over all these years. Um, after the weeks and years that followed the CBS interview, I continued to work hard and grow in my spiritual journey. While I noticed improvements in my anxiety, I still felt something was missing. 
I realized that hard work was defining my life. I became embarrassed by my 70-hour work weeks. Was this really all there was to life? I wasn't feeling the joy that the gospel promised. It took me a while to recognize where this new guilt and anxiety was coming from. After college, I felt into the sin of righteousness and self-salvation. Reconnecting with the church scripture and uh, uh, reading my Bible um, and building my relationship with Jesus Christ after marrying Georgiana, I felt that I was having less anxiety, but I still didn't feel right. After months of discernment over scripture and prayer, I finally realized what was going on. I was using hard work and success as a virtue. My hard work had become a good work to measure worthiness for salvation. That was the root of my anxiety. I had become the worst kind of workaholic. My sin was that my work wasn't to give glory to God. It was to save myself. In 2007, we started attending Free Christian Church after moving from Woburn to Andover. And in the past 12 years, FCC has seen me continue to grow closer to Christ. I credit small group studies and scripture with my growth. I now feel grace in Jesus' sacrifice as being sufficient uh, for my salvation. In addition to life balance with my family, fellowship, and hobbies, I now believe that work is an expression of the Holy Spirit working through me to give glory to God. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. And what, what, a, what a great picture of what God does. God changes us. When we, anybody who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, and this new creation is being formed. And we uh, just praise God for the good work he's done in your heart. And you see it, the, the, the goodness and the badness of, of what work is and what it can be in our lives. I want to unpack that a little bit through these passages that are printed on the back of your bulletin. Uh, first, kind of focus on the badness of work, and Ecclesiastes really highlights this. And again, verse 17, if work takes the wrong place in your life, you could even grow to hate your life. And that's an extreme example, but uh, they, and some of us have experienced that. Uh, and part of it comes from verses 18 and 19. You can't take it with you. Like, what are we really accomplishing in life? It, the, the author here is saying that, you know, I'm, I'm doing all these things, but somebody else is going to get them. Somebody might misuse them or squander what I've uh, worked for. And what's the, what's the purpose in that? And what that leads to here is anxiety in verses 22 and 23. What do people get for all their toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their day's work is grief and pain, and even at night their minds do not rest. That's perhaps the warning sign, and Eric, you use that word, anxiety. You know, having the Harvard education and your own business and all the success, yet anxiety. And I know for me, this is one of the number one signs that work or the tasks that I put my hand to are, are, are having the wrong place in my life is when I'm awake at night thinking about them. And I have to leave a journal next to my bed to, if I, if I can't get back to sleep, if I'm obsessing, I have to write down the things that I'm thinking so that I can at least close that book and maybe get some sleep the rest of the night. It's, it's a warning sign. We've got to watch those warning signs. 
Yet even in its badness, and yet even in the toil and the frustration, we see in verses 24 and 25, that there can be some, some satisfaction, even joy. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without Him, who could eat and find enjoyment? It, you know, yes, work is the work that we do can be frustrated by sin, yet there can be some satisfaction. And yes, it does provide food. As we work, there is a good utility to work. First Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul is teaching this young church. He says, For even when we were with you, we gave this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread that they eat. There's... The, the early Christians taught that work is good, that you should be busy with your hands. You should work hard. You should earn the food that you eat. There is a goodness to that, but there is this deep frustration and even anxiety that can be experienced. That's the, that's the badness of work. But the goodness of work we see in this Thessalonians passage. Here in verses 12 and 13, hard work is commended. Uh, acknowledge those who work hard among you. Now, in the context, it's, it seems like it's ministry work, those who are uh, teaching you, in the, caring for you in the Lord, admonishing you. But really, any work, in, in, in all hard work, in a legitimate work, is commended in Scriptures. This command to not be idle. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. So we see it. There's a goodness. But there's also this danger, this, uh, this badness to work. And we want to get this right because God cares about this. So I want to give you four things to focus on as you consider in your own life the role of your work and your daily tasks. Number one, find your identity in Christ. Find your identity in Christ. If your work and your tasks becomes your identity, and you identify yourself through these things that you do, one of two things will happen. One is that you may become successful, which you might think is a good thing, but it can go to your head. You become so successful and full of yourself that you become arrogant. When people are successful in one field or in one area of their life, they often think that they are experts about all fields and all areas of life and would give advice on anything and have a very inflated and inaccurate view of oneself. And then with that is then where does it end? If you've achieved your successes, there's always another success to achieve. There's always more work to be done. And where does it end? That's if you're successful. On the other end, if you're not successful, so if you're successful, it can go to your head. If you're a failure, it can go to your heart and absolutely crush you. That, that feeling of failure and anxiety and those thoughts of who do you think you really are trying to accomplish these things? What value does your life have because you have not been a success? Our identity, our worth, and our value has to come from something beyond the tasks that we do. It has to go beyond our performance. And it needs to be in Jesus Christ, in His performance, in what He accomplished on the cross. 
It has to be there. In Jesus Christ, we become children of God. That is your identity and your status. That Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive your sins, to give you new life, and to give you acceptance into God's family. That God loves you. That God accepts you in every way. You're justified. Your life is justified because of His grace. Not justified because of the things you accomplish. Then the things that you're building towards and the things that you work towards in life, they, you can give yourself to them. You can uh, build towards God's kingdom and you can do good work and you can, you can invest in things, but it's not your ultimate identity. As one pastor put it, work makes a good servant, but a bad master. Work is a good servant. It helps you to have income. It helps you to. Uh, it, it, it can help the common good and, and accomplish what your what your business or your company is is trying to accomplish. But it's a bad master if it rules over you. Define your identity in Christ. Secondly, seek God's glory. First Corinthians chapter ten verse thirty one says, "Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all." For the glory of God. And the famous reformer Martin Luther said, put it this way. He said, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. The, the way we do work in its right way is that we do it to God's glory. We, we do our work well. We do it excellently. If you own a restaurant, make excellent food for an excellent price. If... If you are a Christian airline pilot, you can witness to your crew and to your passengers, but your primary job is to land the plane. Because those other things may not, may not have the opportunity. We, we, do the, we, can, we are free because these, our work, if, if our work isn't our main identity, if our main identity is in Christ, we can then do the work that we do to His glory in, in gratitude to him and, and not, um, not for our own glory or our own satisfaction. Thirdly, value all types of work. It, it seems that it would be easy for educated people, educated Christians, white-collar Christians, to look down at people who do more menial types of work. But if we think about it, no matter how nice or lovely your home is, if somebody does not clean the house, you will die of filth and of, of germs and bacteria. Somebody has to clean that house. In a hospital, it's easy to revere the surgeons and the doctors and the people who invent these amazing medical devices. But if somebody doesn't clean that floor, you will become sick or more sick. My, my father recently has been hospitalized and he's in sort of a, a rehab hospital now. And we've noticed over these weeks, one of the things we've been paying attention to is just how filthy these rooms can get. Because the people come in and there's all these sterile things that they use and they unwrap them and they throw the wrappers everywhere. There's medical junk just all over the floor 
of these hospital rooms. That, the, that those things need to be cared for and, and, and cleaned, and these devices need to be monitored and maintained. If somebody is willing to pay for the task, it, it needs to be done. It, it, it's, all legitimate work is important. You go eat a fancy meal, you know, there's a restaurant owner, there's a master chef, but there's a lot of people who have touched that food from the time that it was grown and harvested and transported and delivered and prepped. And there's a lot of hands and a lot of things that have touched that food. Every part of it important that you don't get sick. Again, your beautiful home, it has to have... Uh, an adequate roof and insulation and plumbing and all these details. It can become quite dangerous. A hazard, your beautiful house becomes a hazard to you if the, even the smallest tasks aren't done well. We need to value all types of work. In Jesus Christ, there, is no, uh, there are no more classes of people. Scripture says there's no more male and female, slave and free, Jew, Gentile. We're all one in Jesus Christ. That we all stand before him on the same footing. We don't venerate you know, people. Oh, that person makes a lot of money, so we venerate them. In Jesus Christ, we venerate him. And we all stand on the same... Uh, our entrance into this all costs the same thing. It costs Jesus, his body and blood on the cross. And every single one of us pays... It's the same payment that he made for us. So nobody's coming to the table with more or less. We all stand on common ground. We'll, we'll receive the elements of communion together today. And it's a reminder to us that this ta- we are, we're all on equal ground at this table. So we can value all types of work that's done. Fourthly, have faith so that your spirit doesn't get crushed. Like the Ecclesiastes guy. Like Solomon. What I mean by that is this. If you're a lawyer... You want justice. Right? If you're a financial expert, you want to see investments grow. If you're an artist, you want to portray beauty. If you're a counselor, you want to see relationships healed and people achieve health. But when you get into it, because we live in a broken world, because we live in a world that is impacted by sin, We only get to see those things in small ways, not in ultimate ways. You might see justice some of the time. A counselor might see healed relationships every now and then, but you still see the frustration of the world, and that could be crushing. You could be a teacher or a school administrator for all of the years of your career, and at the end of it see that the educational system is failing certain populations. And that type of investment of your life and the lack of results could be crushing, except in Jesus Christ. Christianity, our faith in Jesus, gives us hope that even in this life, even if we just see a, a sliver of goodness, of justice, that there is a day when we will see complete justice. That we'll see complete healing. We'll see unity among people where all resources that people need will be provided. And we have people who help in homeless ministries and, and we, we give a, a, a blanket or we give some food and, and we know that it's, does, it isn't really ending poverty. It's not ending homelessness and that could be crushing. Yet we do it. Why? Because it's a glimmer. 
It's one small step towards the life that is to come. When Jesus returns and his kingdom is known in all of its fullness. So we have hope. We're not crushed by the frustrations of our work. We don't have that deep despair because Jesus Christ is completing his work. So we have faith. So we find our identity in Christ. We seek God's glory. We value all types of work. And we have faith. We have hope. And that's it. Maybe this morning you could think of maybe one aspect of the work that you do that is, uh, that, that there's goodness in that, that you're accomplishing something good. Maybe you could think of one part of your work that's very frustrating, that um, is, is not fulfilling. But God cares about your work. And in Christ, it can have its proper place in our lives, and He can be glorified. Let us pray. Father, our prayer simply as we begin this new year is that our priorities would be glorifying to you. That the things that you've called us to set our hand to do each day, that we would know, first of all, that we are your children by faith. That Jesus Christ has accomplished everything we need. That our lives are justified in him and have their value in your family. So that, Lord, we just pray that we would know the freedom of that. Lift our anxieties from us, Lord, the discouragements of our lives. We turn to you. We pray that we would just give ourselves fully to these good tasks that we have. And it would be for your glory. It would be for the common good of of our communities and the lives that we touch, Lord. Teach us. Help us to grow. Continue to do your good work in transforming us to find our identity in you in every way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.